Welcome to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Dell challenges the status quo, questions everything, and empowers you to return to your core beliefs to make your life better. If you're ready to hear the truth and get your roadmap to the lifestyle you really want, the next hour will change your life. And now your host, self-made millionaire, national award-winning investor of the year, CEO and founder of Lifestyles Unlimited, Del Wamsley. Welcome to Del Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins. I'm your host, Del Wamsley, and as always, we're working on your financial freedom. Today, my friends, I'm going to go to the mailbag and pull up uh, emails that have sent to me and... The first one I'm going to get to is uh, many people send me articles that want me to comment on the articles on the radio show. And I, don't, I like that. Can say I don't mind. I like it, actually, because it gives me stuff to talk about. It makes me think about other topics other than what I'm thinking about. But this first article is called The Collapse of the American Dream. I don't know who writes it here. It says Armstrong or something like that. But it basically goes something like this. The American Dream once upon a time was when parents in, saved to raise their children to have perpetually better lives than they had. Parents would save for college, education, and they would push their children to achieve. My father began saving for me the day I was born. Goes on and says, Americans, no matter the circumstances of birth, share this freedom and ability to get ahead. And it's a long article, so I'm just kind of reading one sentence off each paragraph to get us to the core of the thing. It says, but in today's world, our politicians have sought to replace parents all under the guise of socialism and reduce and eliminate individualism. We are now told from the likes of Ocasio-Cortez is, is that being individuals is evil and we now should become a part of the collective. He goes on and then talks about how the taxes have increased and how socialism has increased and how our privileges have increased and how... COVID is destroying our society and how they're trying to take more and more control. And so this is your basic um, right-wing fight-back article against socialism and the left. Now, yes, well, what do you do? Well, I've got a very clear opinion of this, guys. And that's why I wanted to address this article, although the article is very one-sided on this situation. And that is this. I'm a social liberal, a financial conservative which means I don't belong anywhere. I don't, I don't fit in any party, and I don't think any party has complete control of all the ideas out there. I do know that politics makes the world swing left and then swing right and in massive swings. So Trump did some stuff that made the country go, man, we don't want any more of this stuff. And they blamed the whole Republican ideal and all the good things Trump did and wiped out the Republicans and put in the House, the Senate, and the president with liberals. Now the liberals are doing things that are going to get them wiped out just as quickly because uh, they've swung all the way to the other side. Say, so, well, how do we stop this? Well, I think Michael Berry, the other day, I was listening to radio, he, he had a similar question. and He came back to the, the person that was on the radio, uh, his listener who's called in and said, look, the problem with this socialization, this leftism that's going on right now, is that nobody's willing to fight back. The left has got you so scared that you can't say or do anything, that they'll take away your job, they'll take away your position, they'll take away your life, they'll put you in jail, um, they'll ridicule you. And so the bottom line is, is that you don't want to even fight back. And, and he's saying you need to fight back. I want to take this one step further. 
put my spin on that, what Michael said. I believe you do need to fight back. But I also believe that politics takes up too much of most people's lives by trying to hang with your group. So you get on one station, CNN, and you listen to all the BS and the stories that they want you to hear. And then you get on Fox and you listen to all the BS and stories they want you to hear. And you're wasting your life trying to figure out which tribe you belong to. But even worse than that, what happens is, is that you get on a tribe that says that if you're on our tribe, you have to believe in everything we say. And that's where the real problem happens. You start picking up other people's arguments about stuff you don't even care about. In fact, maybe don't even believe. I believe if you're going to waste all your energy fighting for everything that everybody talks about, you're going to not have a life, not have enough energy and money and time to get rich and to live the way you really want to live because you're destroying your life, wasting it, fighting for stuff you don't really care about. So let me give you an example. I was trying to think of an example that would be a little little edgy. If they politically correct things says, Dell, don't curse on the radio, I'm not going to curse on the radio. I curse when I'm private and public, but when I'm on the radio, I don't curse. You don't curse. That's politically incorrect to curse on the radio. Okay, I won't do it. I'm not going to fight back and try to go against the SEC and try to start my own radio station that doesn't care. I just don't care. I said, okay, what about calling people fat? You know, when I was fat, I didn't like being called fat. It really is kind of mean. And I really don't see me getting any pleasure out of calling somebody fat or ugly or dumb or stupid. I just, there's not a lot of pleasure in that. And so there's really not a need to fight for the right to do that. Now, let's go into more little edgier stuff. What about a man wanting to become a woman? So you think about that for a second. You go, okay, do I care about that? And you go, well, I think it's pretty strange, but I guess I really don't care. It really doesn't affect me in any way, shape, or form. So there's no real political thing saying men can't do that. Now they start trying to teach your kid in school that they probably are thinking that they're male and they're not. Now I'm ready to go to the school board. Now I'm ready to get upset. Now I'm a little irritated. Now they say that these guys that are claiming to be girls now get to swim against them in the swim team, in the girls' swim team. And all the girls in every sport start losing every sport to these guys. Now it's time to get the Republican Party together and just say no. Now there is a issue. Not everything liberal is bad. Not Joe Biden's a complete idiot and the world is ending and the Democrats can't do anything right. No. You don't want your little girl swimming against a guy in in sports. That is something you can fight about. And that's where Michael Berry's right. You need to fight about that. Now, I saw the perfect example of this the other day. I saw a newscast where Jenner, and Bruce Jenner, and I don't even know his new girl name, um, whatever it is, something Jenner, um, he was saying, look, I understand these these women have the right to want to change their sex, just like I did. I, 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 I totally get that. He said, but I'm an athlete, and I know that I could kill women in sports. 
because men's bodies are different than women's bodies. And what the liberals want you to believe is that there is absolutely zero difference between men and women, physically, emotionally, strength-wise, cardiovascular-wise. And he's saying it's not true. There are physical differences. And just because I felt like I was born in the wrong body, I should have been born in a female's body, I was born in a man's body, and therefore I should not compete against women. Because it's unfair. You are going to destroy female sports forever. Now, who should get up and fight for this? Every human being that's got a girl, a daughter, a wife in sports, Every human being that doesn't want men in the girls' bathrooms. These are fighting words. So when something like that comes up and there's going to be a meeting about something like that, I'd be happy to go to that meeting. But if you tell me we're just going to have a rally and jump up and down and go, we love Trump, we love Trump, I'm going, you're an idiot to do that. Today we're hitting the mailbag, and in this segment we're going to start with an article that somebody sent me. It says, rents in New York exceed pre-COVID levels. And it's interesting article. Give you a quick insight here. It says, uh, comment from a real estate broker in New York on rental market. Equity residential is demanding a 40 to 45% increase in lease renewals. On one floor in particular, units have had to tolerate unending noise, smoke, etc., with a common neighbor. There is a security guard on the floor, and in 1970-1980, key money was paid or to supers to get that unit. Today, renters are putting in applications with offers over list price. Uh, multiple offers are being put in per landlord rents of 18 to 20% increase on almost all units. So, the garbled paragraph, what, is it, what are they basically saying? What they're saying is that the rents in New York City are going up radically. Well, my friend, the rents are going up everywhere radically. Okay? So when we look at this, uh, they come back and they want to say, well, why is this? And here's, here's a counter reply to this argument. And I'll read it, and then I'll give you my opinion. It says, reply. Uh, as for the dollar, as the dollar declines in purchasing power going into 2024, prices of everything will rise. For this is stagflation, where prices rise, not because of the rise of the economy, but because of inflation, more akin to the OPEC oil crisis. The real prices of property in New York peaked in 2019 in real terms. We may now see the peak in real estate this March, but that does not mean in nominal terms. So what is nominal? Nominal means it's not real, basically. In other words, a nominal amount is well below what it should be peaking at. With the amount of inflation that's out there right now, the cost of everything is going to go up radically. So what, what do I think about that? Well, I think myself, I can't do anything to stop that. There's just no way. What should I do with that? Well, what I'm doing with that is buying stuff I can buy that makes money, whether or not the price of it goes up or down, and not worrying about the price increase. At the same time, knowing I need to be buying something because values are going up. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by this, because I'm not getting it out clear enough. When I bought single-family homes in the 80s, 
the first house I bought was in foreclosure. It was a $50,000 house I bought for 25,000 bucks. And from that point, my negotiation technique for every foreclosed house was I'll give you 25,000 bucks. No matter what they were worth, I just said, I'll give you 25. And they'd come back and go, no, we won't take 25, we'll take 27. And I'd say, okay, I'll give you the 27. And then we'd go on. And pretty soon I'd start telling everybody, I'll give you 27, because I thought that was the, the real price of these, what they're really worth. And Pretty soon people are going, no, I wouldn't take 27. I'll take 30. And I said, okay, I'll take 30. And this went on for a while until prices got back up to $40,000. And I thought, man, I went from buying the very same size, square footage, style, year-built house for $25,000 up to $40,000. There is no way. There is no way I can go any higher than that. There's got to be a point where the market has peaked. There's got to be. So I stopped buying single-family houses when they went to $40,000. Six months later, houses were at $75,000 a piece. And then a year later, they were at $100,000. And what I realized was that I was buying in a crushed market. And that the the current value had nothing to do. It was nominal to the real value of real estate. And I think that's what's happened for so long, is that there is no more real estate. You've heard this your whole life. There's no more dirt. The earth is partitioned. There's no more real estate. And how do we really value the real value of real estate When the government has all these programs to keep the value of real estate down, to help people buy stuff that they really can't afford to buy, when interest rates are 2 and 3%, and by the way, I just saw an article today, I was reading an article getting ready for the show, and it said that interest rates for HUD deals were um, had gone from 2.3 to 2.6 to almost 3% interest, but have since come back down again to the high 2 two percentages. Guys, this is just, as long as interest rates are this low, and as long as the Fed is throwing money out in the trillions of dollars a year, what is the real value of real estate? Is it possible that the real estate hasn't caught back up yet to what it really is worth? And maybe as I sit here in my normal, normal human economics view of the world, that there's an up and a down, and the market goes up and the market goes down, and there's always market corrections, maybe I'm not even close, just like I wasn't close when I was buying houses $25,000 a piece, thinking that 40000 was way too much until I realized that when they were built, they were worth 50000 And so, all of my estimates of value were wrong. And I'm saying to you right now, this article here has me thinking, maybe all of our estimates about real estate is wrong. I bought seven grocery stores last year. They have doubled in value in one year. I started buying them at one cap rate. They're now at half the cap rate I started buying them at. And again, nominally, I'm going, man, that's it. Nominally, that's expensive. I don't really feel like that's, you know, I should keep doing it until I turn around and look at what happened with me in the houses. That maybe I was just buying these things because nobody wanted them. They weren't posh at the time. I started buying real estate apartment complexes when they were cap rates of 12. They're now down to two and three. When I was at six, I thought they were too expensive, but I was wrong. So the question is, 
what is the real value of this real estate right now as we look into the real estate market? So my point to you is, I'm a buyer. Net, 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 I'm a buyer. And I'll tell you something else, I'm not a seller. Why? Everybody sells into this big market right now is going to get some money. But a year or two from now, you won't be able to buy back into the market because stuff is going to be higher. That's what I see. That's what my 65 years of life experience tells me, that we haven't figured this thing out yet. We're not even close. And if the government stays in place and they keep spending money, then this thing hasn't even begun to slow down. It can't. Money has to go somewhere. And usually, it goes to inflate the cost of used goods and assets. So what's your secret? You better own some assets during this stagflation. My address, if you want to contact me, is askdell at l-u-i-n-c dot com, which stands for Lifestyles Unlimited, Inc. So it's askdell at l-u-i-n-c dot com, askdell at l-u-i-n-c dot com. And uh, we can get your you know questions answered for you. It's me answering your questions, no one else. Uh, I take my own emails and so forth. So if you've got something, send it to me, and we'll see if we can get it. If it's good, uh, we'll think about putting it on the radio as a question uh, that we can answer. Take a short break. We'll be right back with the Del Wamsley Radio Show. live to 100% virtual. And you know, the funny thing is, is that nobody wants to go back to work now that work from home, right? So now my members are like, well, Dell, we want to keep those virtual things open because now I know all the people in Miami and I know all the people in Chicago. I know all the people now know each other from all over the country because of these virtual events. The free workshop, How to Retire in Five Years or Less, is online. Go to lifestylesunlimitedworkshop.com. Welcome back to the Del Wamsley Radio Show. Today we are working out of the mailbag, and I've got an email here from a gentleman asking a question. He said, I took the Financial Freedom Seminar in December where I learned that I had held on to my duplex in Portland, Oregon suburb too long. I bought it in 2004, and I have about 240000 in equity, which is earning me only about 4.9% return. So I want to do a 1031 exchange to buy two or three properties in different cities where I can get a better return. He goes on and says, the current problem is that one of the tenants is five months behind and that the tenant has applied for rental assistance from Oregon to pay all the past due rent plus three months in advance for a total of $12,400. However, the state has not processed the payment of the rental assistance yet. Obviously, this matter makes the profit and loss statement look terrible. And the real estate broker said that it could cost me as much as 20% of equity. Furthermore, the state of Oregon does not allow landlords to move forward with evictions while the tenant is applying for rental assistance. These are just more reasons why I detest government intervention. So my first question is, should I quickly dump the property for whatever I can get or wait for rental assistance to finally kick in? No, my friend, the problem is you don't know how to do accounting. What you are doing is you are doing cash accounting. And cash accounting says, I don't claim income until I get the money in my hand. But that's not the way income statements 
really work in the real world. There's something called accrual accounting. And what you do is you take your balance sheet and income statement and change them this way. Take whatever rental amount that the tenant should have paid you by now, not the stuff three months in advance, but whatever they should have paid you by now, and put that into your income column. Because that is earned. In other words, you've provided the service. They have used it. They have taken advantage of the service. And the government is guaranteeing you to pay that for them. So it is money that is in arrears, that is owed. It becomes what we call accounts receivable. So you set up an accounts receivable account from the government assistance check. Now, when you go to sell it, your income statement shows that you have the income from that person living there. Your balance sheet shows that you have an accounts receivable. So if they ask for your financials, you show them and you just explain, look, this tenant has been taken care of by the government financial assistance program. We're waiting on the check. So you can close on this deal right now and I will assign you the government assistance check. We'll put that in the contract that when the 12400 shows up, you will get that. So it will be, if any of it's income earned while you have the property, it's yours. If it's the income earned from my part of the property, you'll get it too, because you're buying it as if it had already gotten that income. Now, you're giving away income that way, but for a potential buyer, that's a potential gain. Instead of dropping the value of your property, $20,000, just say you'll give them the check. Now your property is actually worth more because now you're selling your property plus past rents. You're giving away part of the past rents. That should work 100% of the time. You, If you have a really strong buyer's market, then you don't even need to give them the check for $12,400. You simply say, I will receive the check for $12,400 because it's my check due to me for the time I own the place. And any of that check is due for part of the rent that you are going to receive, I will sign this agreement. It's called a post-closing prorations agreement that says any of the income that comes to me that's yours due to you, I will give to you. And so, very simply, you've solved the problem with accounting and not with selling for twenty or 30000 too low or trying to evict a tenant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. See, this is one of the things. Now, the next point he makes is, well, how do I know where to go buy real estate? Look, all you have to do is Look up what states are red and what states are blue. That's all you have to do. Just look at the political outlook of the state. If it is a Republican state and everything in the state is run by Republicans, you'll do fine there. If it's run by Democrats, you'll do terrible there. I hate to make it that black and white, but it's that black and white. Republicans believe in business. Democrats believe in totalitarianism, socialism. And so as you move your businesses around, and I own businesses in many cities, many states, in fact, we have found four more states this last year that we wanted to put a real estate company in. And when I say put a real estate company in, I mean my members are buying real estate there, so I'm going to go start a real estate sales company there so we can help them buy real estate there. But there's many places, and I'm not going to give them all to you right now, but they're out there. And so, like I said, if you want to start with the easiest way, look to that. Second thing to do is look to where you want to live. Because if you're smart, you're going to get out of that state because that is a terrible, terrible, terribly run state. Oregon. Okay. Next one says, uh, I like the show you did. I just totally invested 700000 in eight deals. Timing with taxes was important. I could have done that better. Okay. 
I guess there's, this isn't even a question, it's just a statement, but here's the question that comes out of the statement. When you're taking large amounts of funds out of your IRA or your 401k, in fact, that's one of the questions that is in here is what should I do about my IRA and 401k? When you're taking money out of your IRA and 401k to invest, you need to look at the timing of it because if there's going to be a change in your income from year one to year two, let's say in 2021, I knew I was going to retire in 2022, I wouldn't have pulled my money out in 2021. I would have pulled my money out in 2022 because I will be in a lower tax bracket if I don't have a job. Or if you just look at it this way, if you were in a tax bracket that you could pull out sum of money and not push yourself out of that tax bracket this year and buy something with that money, then next year wait and pull out another amount you could pull out without running up your taxes, great, then that would probably be a good thing to do. It's timing. I'm not an expert at it because I really don't care because I don't have any money in IRAs, 401ks. I got out of all that craziness 30 years ago. So the next question though that I want to place with that, I think is this one. I've got a bunch of questions here. The thing says, I'm 60 years old. I have 100 401k. Would it be better to transfer the money into a self-directed IRA or purchase four $25,000 passive deals within the self-directed IRA? All right. The bottom line this, you don't own the money in the IRA. You think you own the money in the IRA, but you haven't paid taxes on the money in the IRA. To get the money out of the IRA, you're going to have to pay taxes on the money. Now let's take it one step further. Okay, well, why don't we leave it in the IRA and go buy deals? Well, when you do that, how much income do you make? None. Real estate, when done correctly, outside of an IRA or 401k, can be depreciated against and reduce the income to almost eliminate the income from depreciation. But when it's in an IRA, there is no deductions. There's no depreciation deductions. So whatever you earn is going to be in your IRA without those deductions. Secondly, when you take the money out of the IRA, let's say you want to start living off that money, you've got to pay taxes on not only the money you put in the IRA, but the money earned after you put the money in the IRA. So you end up paying double taxes. You're getting taxed over and over and over again. Say, but Dell, if I take it out now, I'm going to have less to invest with because I paid the taxes. That's the whole idea of the IRA and the 401k is that you don't pay the taxes. At this point, you have more money to invest. Yes, I've done the math. I've done the math both ways and I've done it live for 30 years on a chalkboard in front of people. The bottom line is get the money out in the lowest taxable way you can get it out and invest in real estate you can earn money from. When that first rent check comes in and you're making $500,000, $2,000 a month of positive cash flow, you want that money in your pocket, not in your IRA. And if you do the investment correctly, the real estate depreciation will cover the income and you won't pay taxes on the income from that money. And if you do it right, your property will appreciate. And when it appreciates, you can use the 1031 to move money out of it into another deal, or you can refinance and pull money out tax-free, all of which you can't do in your IRA. So the IRA for the person who blindly just puts money in the stock market and leaves it there is an okay vehicle. But for people who really get out there and use real estate the way it can be used, it's not a good idea to do it that way. So tie those two together and you've got an idea there somewhere in all that. Just keep in mind that the 401k and IRA don't work. You'll never retire off of a 401k or IRA. You have to have invested assets that pay income over and over again. Today we're in the mailbag and uh, I've got another email here that says, uh, when you get to the point where you're going to sell one of your single family properties, do you always have to roll your profit into other properties in order to get the tax breaks or can you pocket some of it? Uh, No, you have to roll it into another property. And any part of it that you don't roll into another property, you're going to pay the capital gains tax on and the 
absorb the recapture of whatever depreciated income that you took against that part of the property. So yes, you do have to 1031 it forward, but there's a different way. And I got to get back to basics here. Everybody wants to buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell. One of the techniques is just refinance the money out of the house instead of selling it. You leave a little bit of equity in the house, pull the rest out and go buy something else. Or even if you want to just go get some money out of your house to use for fun, which doesn't build your wealth. But if you do that, you refi it, pull the money out. It's tax-free. You don't pay any taxes on it at all. It goes on and says, when I think about depreciation for tax purposes, is it something that I need to fully understand or is this something that LU suggests letting accountants handle? Two points. Number one, it's something you totally need to understand because you can't buy real estate effectively if you don't totally understand how the accounting of taxes and taxation works and how depreciation works and how 1031s work. And if you don't understand that, then you're not getting the full benefit out of real estate investing. A lot of people do have done real estate investing in the past, and I'd say... 70, 80% of the people that come to my class say, you know, I've been doing this stuff for five or 10 years and I didn't know half of this stuff. I didn't do it, didn't do it right. And that's why you're not making 50, 60, 70, 80, 100, 200, 300, 400% returns because you don't know all those things that make each little turn of the screw, each little flip of the switch makes the deal that much better. Having said that, I don't ever do my own taxes. I always have my CPA do my taxes and I always have my CPA review large purchase decisions where it's something I don't understand. Like recently I started buying commercial real estate. I didn't know what the depreciation schedule was on commercial real estate. So I had to go and find out from my CPA. So both. We got another one. One to ask you your advice on obtaining medical insurance once I'm in a position to retire. I assume people 65 and older just have Medicare. How about those retire before 65? Bottom line guy and everybody out there. What you don't realize is that you are paying for health insurance. It's coming out of your paycheck, or it's a part of the value that your employer is paying you. But you are buying insurance. People don't seem to think that. They seem to think that insurance is free. It's not free. You're paying for either part of it or all of it in your paycheck, or your employer is paying part of it or all of it in your paycheck for you. Now, when you get on the outside world, all you do is you go someplace where they have individual insurance policies. And they're all over the place. There's all kinds of different insurance policies you can get for health insurance type things, whether it's a a standalone that you can go anywhere with, or you have to be a part of a group, or you can only go to their medical team and so forth. And there are also groups that get together and insure people that have a lot of problems. For example, before they had the no existing conditions rule that came with the Obamacare, I couldn't get insurance because I had cancer. <laughs> Think about that. Hi, I'd like to get some insurance. Uh, do you have any medical history? Yeah, I've died like three times and I have, I've had almost everything to kill you and I've had cancer and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I don't think we want to insure you, Dell. But they had a state-based program where I got in with Blue Cross Blue Shield through the state's program. So it's out there. You just got to go look for it, price it, find it, and buy it. All right, next one here. My competitor in town just sold a eight-unit property, self-storage unit, with a 4.4 cap rate. They're interested in my property as well and could net me $6 million capital gain. While I would like to capture this capital gain, I'm concerned about where to invest the money. Do you advise folks to get your trade-up property ready beforehand? Absolutely. When you're in a seller's market like it is right now, you can sell your property instantly. And if these people want to buy your property, 
you just go into contract on a contingency. You say, look, I'll, I'll sell you a contingency to buy my property. We can agree on the terms right now. I'm going to start looking for me something to buy. And when I've got mine in contract and I know I'm going to be able to close, then I'll close what they call the down leg of the 1031. I'll close your deal so I have the money to put in my deal. But until then, I wouldn't do it. Now, having said that, I'm telling people right now, don't sell. I'm telling them all over the place, don't sell. Why? Because you're not going to be able to replace that income. Whatever income this thing, that he if he can pull $6 million out of it, he's got some income coming in. And he's not going to be able to replace that income because everything is going up in price. And so you sell, you think, wow, I, made a, I, I bought mine for 10 and sold it for 20 That's great. Until you go out there and find out you're now going to have to pay 22 to get back into anything. So I'm telling people, just refinance that money out of there and go buy more. Don't sell it. Here's the last one. Dell, for 13 years, I've been a Lifestyles member since 2009. My five first deals were with blank. I can't give out names. I have the great admiration for your leadership. As an active investor, I realize you're often in the market buying multifamily properties. I'm accredited. I have lots of money. I'm working in the group. Could I get in one of your deals? I put this one in here for this reason, guys. I want you to understand that once you really become wealthy, if you're truly wealthy, you stop being a syndicator. All these guys out there being syndicators are taking other people's money and using their money to make them money and themselves a lot more money. I made tons of money when I was a syndicator. But at a point where you get that you really want to retire, you really want to own your life, you don't want to be working as a syndicator. A syndicator is a job. So at some point, if you're ever going to truly be successful and truly be happy, you're going to have to go back to buying your own real estate. And besides that, if the deals are that good that I want to put my money in them, I want to put all my money in them. And I want every last bit of it. I'd rather own one 100% of a 100% return deal than 25% of four 5% deals. For that reason, sir, I don't take investors anymore. Thank you for asking and look forward to you finding some people that are still syndicating. Now, from the files of Dell Wamsley. 20% of the activities you do in life produce 80% of your results. That's his efficiency ratio. Now, it's obvious in life, if you can do more of the 20% that makes a difference and less of the 80% that doesn't, you can be more successful. So it's that line. Here is the line. You live, let's say there's a line where you are exactly an 80-20 person. Successful people are more like 30-70. Unsuccessful people are more like 90-10. What I mean by that is the people who are unsuccessful spend 90% of their time doing stuff that means nothing and only 10% of the time doing something that's effective. Very successful people spend 30% of their time doing something effective and only 70% of their time doing something ineffective. For the rest of you out there, remember this. We don't do this for the money. We do it for the lifestyle. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you tomorrow. The information and opinions you hear on the Dell Wamsley Radio Show are those of the host, Dell Wamsley, his guests, and his callers, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of this station, its affiliates, its management, or advertisers. The Dell Wamsley Show is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult a professional regarding your personal investment needs. Nothing presented on the Dell Wamsley Show constitutes an endorsement, recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or security.